0: As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at posh.com. Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson.
1: Hi, everyone. Glad to uh, be here on the show with another exciting Pro Se for everyone.
0: Yeah, we have our favorite, one of our favorite guests on, Jimmy Hoover, a little later. Um, He talked with Bill and I to kind of give a big picture overview of the Supreme Court term that just ended last week. You know, on Pro Se, we've talked as big opinions have come out big you know cert grants and that stuff all through the term but it's nice to kind of take a step back and get a survey of the lay of the land and what we learned from from the term
2: it was a good chat with jimmy we um uh some of it was sort of a, a talk about perception versus reality and how things went and how things people how people expected things to go um so it's a good chat stick around for that um But before then, we are going to spend a little time talking about the legal dimensions uh, to the tragedy in South Florida last month. um, uh, About two weeks ago, part of uh, a building, the Champlain Towers condominium complex in Surfside, Florida, collapsed in the middle of the night. Um, The death toll currently stands at 60, but of course there are about 80 people who are currently classified as missing um so it's a a really horrible tragedy but there are um some you know as as there often is with um terrible situations like this there is uh there is a lot that the legal community is going to have to sift through here
0: yeah and it seems like there may be you know out of this tragedy we may learn some lessons that protect people in the future as well so a lot to unpack here but let's start with lawsuits that have been filed what do we know about those
2: yeah, so um before we get into private litigation, I, I think it's, you know, it's obvious uh but but just to just to say it for the record, um obviously government authorities have opened criminal and civil investigations into why this happened, um what yeah. what potentially led to it. Um that is all ongoing sort of behind the scenes. We will certainly keep you posted in the weeks and likely months ahead as if there's fines or criminal charges or, or anything like that that comes out of this. Um, uh, but as of Tuesday, at least five private lawsuits related to the collapse have been filed. Um, they involve class action claims, individual claims. Um, they've been filed in state court. Um, many more of these kind of cases are expected to be filed in the weeks ahead. Um, as of right now, the cases are being handled by a Florida state judge, uh, Michael Hansman, who... Has it uh has indicated that the cases are likely to be grouped into two different sections with different counsel? Um, mm-hmm. One is for victims who lost possessions, had their home destroyed, um, the property things of that nature, and yeah. another for people who uh, families of people who lost loved ones. Um, there have been a few developments of note so far in the you know the the week or so that we've been tracking this litigation. Um, last week, Judge Hansman appointed a receiver to represent the condo association. Um, there had been talks of not only conflict of interest but also trauma because some of those people lived in the building and they had their you know that that there's a they were a little too close here so um, a receiver has been appointed to represent the condo itself in this litigation Um, uh, the judge also expressed worry at one point that um, because it has come to light that the building had only about 48 million dollars in insurance coverage Um, there's been sort of a wide range of what um has been reported in terms of what the uh the land is worth. Um right. I, I saw thirty to fifty in one report, I saw something above a hundred in another. But there's gonna be a lot of liability here is the is the key. And um, you know, so even when you add up that insurance coverage and the the property value, um there there's already a lot of concern that that there's not going to be enough to go around for all the people who have been victimized here. Mm-hmm. So, with those asset shortcomings in mind, um, the judge has been very conscious that they they need to find ways to be careful with the way that this money gets doled out, and... um, uh, this week, he urged the plaintiff's attorneys um, working on the case to provide their services for free, essentially on a pro bono basis. Um, mm-hmm. He praised all of them and said, look, the, you are the you know, this is the like I think he said the Mount Rushmore of the of the Florida plaintiff's bar. But um, but, y- you know, you need to view this as a, a different. Situation than a normal, you know that that hun- over a hundred people likely died here, and um and there isn't enough money to to make everyone right. So, mm-hmm. um by yesterday Wednesday, basically all of the firms uh, that were vying for to work on this case had agreed to do so on a pro bono basis. So, um uh, they may get some fees based on whatever is recovered ultimately. Um, but uh, the the good news is they have agreed to sort of you know treat this as a special situation and 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 um, you know represent these victims uh, as as sort of a public service.
1: There are lots of different sort of spools of litigation which I think you've walked us through here, um, both public and private. Um, but I know that when something like this happens, there's also a lot of attention paid to efforts, whether it's regulatory or legislative or whatever, to. Be more preventative um, about uh, stuff like this happening in the future, and I think the wheels are in motion on that um, already uh, in this uh, in in Florida. Here, is that right?
2: Yeah, I mean, there was a uh, I think maybe almost a decade ago now, there was a terrible building collapse in Philadelphia, and I remember that there was you know there was very quick short term stuff of people criminal charges and negligence and all that stuff, and then longer term reforms to the systems that yeah. were in play, perhaps uh, at a deeper level. And I think that's the hope here is that, um, uh, you know, that this does lead to to longer changes. I, I, I wanted to shout out our Miami reporters, Carolina Bellotto and Nathan Hale, who have been doing really good work uh, from the jump on this story. And Carolina had a great story yesterday about how um, uh, about this, about how experts hope that there is um, some low hanging fruit that could quickly be fixed with some uh, legislation or ordinances that would address some of, um, you know, maybe... Uh, hopefully prevent some of this in the future there's already been a working group put together to um, put together a report on changes that could be made one thing that's being looked at is uh, how frequently buildings are inspected for structural flaws Um, right obviously florida has uh, uh, you know um, pounding weather uh, in a way that many states do not, especially coastal, uh, coastal Florida. Yeah. Um. And um. So Miami Dade County currently requires inspections at forty years and then every ten years subsequently. Um. Now, changing that here might not have helped the Champlain Towers because there are lots of reports that we haven't got really gotten into because it's fairly early. But that you know that this building was inspected in twenty eighteen and given. Um, A clean bill of health, despite some some uh, red flags. So maybe changing those, you know, those inspection guidelines wouldn't have fixed this situation. But um, one of the things that has been discussed as a way to to. Improve the state's overall, uh, you know, structural integrity rules is to reduce the years before those inspections happen. You know, make them happen more often, um, and then enacting statewide laws for counties that don't have those rules because Miami Dade has them, but not yep. all of Cal- not all of Florida has them.
0: This is really interesting that that's one of the initial fixes. Because personal note, I live in Jersey City, and uh, the mayor of Jersey City, <laughs> in light of this, proposed similar, you know, uh, ins- uh, inspections that were more frequent for high rise buildings because there's a lot in my neighborhood. Um, so I think that may be what's happening in a lot of cities around the country that they see this terrible disaster and they might take steps in their own jurisdictions. There's yeah.
1: been, there, there's been sort of a referendum even in the early days following this tragedy of like, there was a condo boom in the last, like, I don't know, three or four decades or whatever, or however you want to define it. And like that
2: oversight of that could Probably stronger, which I think is what you're getting at here, Bill. Exactly, and um, uh, yeah, I saw a similar legislation was introduced by a New York lawmaker, I believe, yesterday. Um, so you know, maybe across the country, people will be looking at this and saying, "How can we take a take a closer look at at big buildings like this?" Um, another fix that's been suggested in Florida specifically would be stricter requirements for condo associations to have. Um, Uh, better reserve funds so that structural problems can get fixed quickly. Uh, That 2018 report that I mentioned earlier found, quote, major structural damage in the Champlain Towers, but Mm -hmm. um, unit owners reportedly squabbled and, um, you know, disagreed over the uh, reported $10 million price tag to make those fixes. So, um, requiring... Passing legislation that requires buildings to keep more money on hand, sort of you know in a separate account that can't be waived by owners it can't be voted down, yeah, um, that might help stuff get fixed when it needs to be. One particularly sort of bold suggestion for this would be um to sort of affect a similar outcome if you don't want to force people to have their own money would be to Create a system of government-backed loans uh, for condo associations that need to make drastic repairs. If there have been, if there has been a structural report that says this needs to happen quickly, yeah. um, that condos can get sort of a fifteen or thirty-year sort of a mortgage-like loan. Um, loans are already available for stuff like this, but it's not on that long-term government-backed uh, basis. So, you know. The whole idea is just trying to incentivize people to actually fix these problems when they're identified. Um, and, and all of this is is in addition to, um, you know, the more common sense stuff, like making sure that the existing rules are being followed and that, that folks are doing good inspections and all that. I mean, there's always when it comes to this stuff, there's always sort of a two track of like what was the law and and yeah. can that be updated and you know was there user error and can that be fixed or prevented in the future so um so yeah i mean just to get us out i mean th- th- there is um it's it's uh, a horrible situation that i'm sure we're going to be tracking uh, for months or years ahead but um there is at least the hope that, that that there's the silver lining here that this will lead to lasting change that will prevent something similar from happening in the future
1: Next, we're going to talk about an opinion from the Fifth Circuit that I think will be of interest to the um, to the entire legal industry. Really, Um, the uh, opinion came out uh, and it said that um, attorneys cannot be forced to pay bar association dues um, when the state is using that money for uh, what are considered non germane lobbying activities. So this deals with sort of mandatory fees that you pay to your state bar association that are sometimes dispersed out to um, other political activities. Uh, the stakes are obviously pretty high here for the legal profession, um, and the court's opinion parses this question on a couple of different levels, uh, all of which are uh, very interesting and, um, and have a lot of different uh, implications for, uh, for our listeners.
0: I'm still paying some bar dues, So my ears have even perked up on this one, guys. um let's let's get into what's at issue here in the case,
1: yeah. So the cases that were it's actually two cases that were that were covered by two different opinions. But basically, attorneys in both Texas and Louisiana uh, have sued their respective states over the dues that they pay to their bar associations. And they have argued that, Those associations, which are supposed to be basically, you know, watchdogging or regulating the conduct of attorneys in these states, are also using the money to lobby for legislative causes. And the issue sort of most that was that that bubbled to the surface in these cases was around uh, the bar associations advocacy for bills that would increase Uh, LGBTQ rights Um, so attorneys objected to their dues being used to fund lobbying uh, for laws like that and that's where this bubbled up Um, and what they are uh, what they are effectively saying is that the like lobbying for these bills are not you know this is the this is the trigger language in the statute are not germane to the task of overseeing the legal industry in those states. Um federal courts uh, lower courts had upheld those fees finding that the payouts were within the ambit or basically were within were under the umbrella of you know the sort of mission of these state bar groups um and with those lower court rulings this obviously set us up for uh, sort of some some very closely watched uh, litigation on appeal which is what we're talking about this week
2: i love to talk about what things are and are not germane uh, <laughs> yeah well a,
1: lawyers do too and that's it's a word why this is it's a word i use all uh, the time
2: yes uh, um but let's let's talk about the um the decision we got this week and what they said about these arguments
1: yeah well it's it's i mean you're you're making jokes there and i and and listen great joke um i thank you so uh, but, much Yes, but it is it is kind of illustrative to say, um, you know, that this isn't just existing in some uh, other vacuum. These are lawyers who are like are carefully parsing what their money is going to. And that's why it's obviously very interesting. But um, I think it's important to state very clearly that this is not a case about whether state bar associations can collect fees they can i mean that's been upheld in case law for many years now like state you know the states can mandate that industry associations can collect money from lawyers as part of like a regulatory uh, or oversight um duty um but in this opinion um this is really an examination of what the money can be used for and in this ruling the 5th circuit said that basically A lot of the bar's advocacy for LGBTQ rights and other laws reached beyond uh, what people understand to be its mandate as a watchdog. Um, This was a a pretty compelling quote uh, from from the decision, I thought. Quote, although states have interest in allocating the expenses of regulating the legal profession and improving the quality of legal services to licensed attorneys, They do not have a compelling interest in having all licensed attorneys engage as a group in other non-germane activities. Later on, uh, the court added that, quote, uh, some of the legislative program is non-germane. So compelling the plaintiffs to join an association engaging in it violates their freedom of of association. So this boils down to a constitutional question where the state is effectively mandating that you uh, that that you pay to uh, advocate for these causes that in some certain cases uh, the attorneys do not personally support.
0: So this is only the Fifth Circuit and these uh, potentially these kind of um, disputes over dues could come up in really any state. So what's the outlook for what happens next year?
1: Yeah, there's a there's a couple of different ways to go. So the And and, and I'm glad you said this This is one court ruling on this is, again, Texas and Louisiana. So it's two states that have mandatory bar association fees. Uh, The opinion noted that 31 states and also the District of Columbia have mandatory bar fees. um, And it said uh, that it laid out a couple of different paths that these states can can potentially resolve this. They said the court said that these states can either sort of stop advocating for these things that they consider to be non-germane, or it can develop either a voluntary or a hybrid fee system. Uh, States like California and New York have either a voluntary fee system or sort of a, you can pay for certain things, but not for other things. A more measured approach, it said, you know, these states can adopt something like that. Um, So that's just sort of, the, the court laid that out in sort of a prescriptive way as they, as, as they decided this case. But um, I think uh, is, as far as like, the bigger picture is concerned, there's a growing sense that this may need to be settled by the Supreme Court. Um, just last month, the same attorney that was representing these, these lawyers in Texas and Louisiana filed a sur-petition at the high court um, challenging basically a similar fee system in Oregon. So we'll see how that goes. Um, The sort of central question here is whether the fees are in line with a 2018 decision in um, Janus, which basically strikes down mandatory fees in public sector unions. So that's like government unions basically saying that, um, you know, you can't use public sector union dues that may conflict with union members' political beliefs. Uh, State bar associations are functionally an extension of public sector unions in states where they require you to to pay dues to this bar association, right? So it's a different way of framing the same question. Um, The Supreme Court has denied petitions on this question um, very recently. I think three years ago, they denied sort of a facial challenge to mandatory bar association fees. Um, But as litigation continues to bubble up here in the lower courts, Uh, We're likely to see a new push for that. uh, And uh, it's definitely something to monitor uh, for, um, uh, for the industry.
0: As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live, virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at posh.com. No one knew quite what to expect in the 2020 Supreme Court term. It kicked off just a month after a contentious presidential election. The court grappled with the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Politicians called for court reforms and predicted deep partisan division. But now that the term's behind us, we can take a step back and assess the big picture. How did the court handle all of these factors? Here to give us some perspective is our own Supreme Court expert, Jimmy Hoover. Jimmy, so much to talk about, so I'm really glad you're with us today.
3: Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on. And I just want to say before we get going, I was listening to last episode of Pro Se, uh, you know, it was Friday evening. I was on a flight, and I heard you guys talking about. Oh, as soon as Jimmy cracks his first beer for the weekend, it's going to be a briar <laughs> retirement. So you <he laughs> did give me a little scare there, uh, but but here we are, um, recording on Thursday, and yes, as of as of yet, no Supreme Court retirements, and so we can take a second to just kind of digest everything that happened in the last nine months. You
2: got to you got to enjoy your holiday weekend in peace. In relative peace. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think the the possibility of the retirement is the only thing that didn't happen this term, though, because we just had a ton going on over the last, you know, the last several months. I'd like to start with Amy Coney Barrett, because it was her first term on the court. People had a lot of expectations that she would potentially be a very conservative voice. And um, that wasn't always necessarily true. So I just wanted to kind of unpack what we learned. What do we know about her as a justice?
3: Well, I would say that her kind of profile as a justice is still really coming into view. And, and really, her profile as a judge. I mean, she had only been on the Seventh Circuit for a relatively short period of time when she was nominated to replace uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so we learned, I would say, a little bit more about her. So the first thing I would say is that You know, a lot of conversation has posed the question, you know, was she perhaps less conservative than expected through some of her high profile votes in some big cases this term? And to that, I would just say in a lot of, you know, when the rubber met the road in some of these controversial cases, she was in lockstep with the other Republican appointees on the court in those kind of ideologically split six to three or five to Mm -hmm. four cases, whether you're talking about providing the you know the swing vote to to strike down uh, covid-19 regulations on religious gatherings or you know voting with the conservatives against um a California law giving union organizers access to California farm workers or whether we're talking about you know voting rights and so on and so forth but i think what that kind of perception comes from is the fact that in several other big cases she did kind of form a little bit of a coalition in the center of the supreme court with you know uh, justices who were perceived as being kind of more moderate than perhaps like the 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 what what some might say the far uh, right justices someone like Thomas or Alito or perhaps even Gorsuch and in that way I would say one thing that was really notable about justice Barrett's votes in those cases is that she tended to embrace kind of narrower decisions she wasn't reaching for the most sweeping or aggressive remedy to to make a big splash in the law and I think that bared out in 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 several different cases so it's still pretty early to say you know what exactly her judicial profile is but it's one that is cr- seems at least closer to the moderation or the conservative moderation of someone like Kavanaugh or Roberts than it is to kind of the first principles, like, you know, uh, I would say ideological underpinnings of someone like Gorsuch or Thomas, for instance.
0: Yeah, we'll have to wait and see if that's just freshman year cautious behavior or if this becomes her ongoing pattern. But it is interesting that she um, didn't fall quite as conservative as some had, had postulated that she would.
2: Yeah. And and Jimmy, can, can we view some of what you just said about Barrett as sort of a microcosm for, you know, how the court acted generally this term in terms of I think there was you, you wrote a, a really interesting piece about how there was up until the last day, there was a lot of consensus, uh, uh, you know, and and more sort of moderation than perhaps people were expecting.
3: I think that was a big story of the term that there the court seemed at least to be trying to reach more consensus than perhaps it had in the past. I mean, there was a, a pretty noticeable uptick in unanimous decisions. There were twenty-five unanimous decisions in argued cases this term, which was about a you know, a forty percent increase over the term before, and they came in some pretty big cases, I would say, you know. I think the most notable probably was a 9 to 0 decision in favor of a Catholic foster care agency that was suing under the first amendment um of its rights to essentially refuse to place children with same-sex parents and this was a like I said a unanimous decision but but you're right that the story of that unanimity is also this, of one of kind of moderation and narrowness so for instance let's take this Catholic social services case where you had a 9 to zero uh, court basically ruling in favor of this foster care agency. If you actually read the decision, it's very narrow. So the justices seem to be sacrificing some substance for this consensus. And the the court specifically in this case said that it had mostly to do with the, the terms of the contract and how this particular contract between Catholic Social Services in the city of Philadelphia was set up. It doesn't have that broad application to a number of other Um, First Amendment free exercise cases going forward. And and that was something that Barrett had embraced. She voted with the majority to refuse to take that extra step to make a big splash in favor of religious freedom. And that actually, I would kind of say, frustrated some of the other more conservative justices on the court, like Gorsuch and like Alito, who wanted to see the court take that further step of making a big splash and and hand down a landmark ruling, overturning a 40-year-old Um, precedent that conservatives have long been, you know, gunning for, and also just kind of declaring that these are, you know, broadly protected First Amendment rights. And Barrett wasn't willing to go that far, even if she did write a separate concurrence saying, I do, like, sympathize with these underlying legal arguments. However, this is not the case to kind of take that next big step. And we saw that, like, in case after case. I mean, even the non- it wasn't a unanimous decision; it was a seven to two decision. But even the Affordable Care Act case, you know, that was decided on fairly narrow grounds. That was right. a seven to two ruling upholding um, the Affordable Care Act, but it was decided on standing. It, they didn't; the court didn't actually reach the merits of the Republican challengers' uh, lawsuit, which essentially said that you know the the whole ACA should fall as a result of the zeroing out of the individual mandate. And and Thomas, again, he was with that seven justice majority, but he explained, you know, he thought the law's uh, defenders were pulling an about face. He really sympathized with the Republican arguments in the case. However, he said that, you know, this was just a case where they couldn't show that they had standing. And so that was kind of the story of the term that there were these broad, unanimous or near unanimous, narrow rulings, again, up until the very last day when we saw a pair of kind of your predictable ideological split there, all six Republican appointees in the majority and all three Democratic appointees in the minority.
0: Yeah. So this is really an interesting um, sort of litmus test of how people feel that the Supreme Court should function. Like, is it a good thing that they are finding so much consensus so it's not as partisan as some had worried about? Or is this in some ways almost a cop out that They're only finding consensus because they're doing things so narrowly that now lower courts are still going to have to grapple with the bigger picture.
2: Right. Nobody is getting nobody is getting what they wanted because everyone is (laughs) just they're trying to please everyone. You know, even if it's even if it's not what you wanted, you go at least go go strong for one thing or the other. But uh, I mean, lawyers love
0: to say all the time that what they really like most is a clear rule, a clear, bright line, something that isn't mushy. And we had a lot of mush this term, I think. (laughs)
3: <laughs> there was certainly a lot of mush, <laughs> but I think too it was, much mush. It was stri- <laughs> it was strategic mush, right? It was um, it was intentional mush on the part, I would say, of the of the courts. Three liberal justices, and I and I keep circling back to that Philadelphia case, and it, and it really reminded me of you know the famous masterpiece cake shop case from 2017 about the Christian baker who refused to serve the same sex couple. That was kind of a similar scenario where it, the court embraced this very narrow holding that, you know, in that case, the Colorado Civil Rights Division hadn't been respectful enough towards the baker's religion. And and the litigation over these wedding vendors in the context of LGBTQ uh, weddings is still playing out around the country. However, the liberal justices in this case, as in that case, were happy to join the majority's opinion, the majority's holding in the case, the judgment. And And you have to just assume it's because they're, you know, they're reaching such a narrow ground that it's not going to have those broad ripple effects that perhaps it, they, it, the decision would have had otherwise had they not signed on to it. That's at least my kind of reading into a little bit between the tea leaves there of why you would have had all three liberal Democratic appointees in this case um, joining with the conservatives to rule in favor of the Catholic foster care agency.
0: Jimmy, let's pivot to talk about some of the areas where there were maybe a little more declarative in in what their rulings held and more sweeping. We did have a few, especially on that last day, where it was uh, along the partisan divides that people had been predicting, and um, there were some pretty strong rulings. Tell us about those.
3: Yeah, so the last day was when any kind of illusion about harmony and kumbaya on the Supreme Court was pretty <laughs> much shattered and and over and done with. You had Two very big decisions. Um, the, I would say the first, the biggest one, was a case called Bernovich versus Democratic National Committee, and and this was a holding in which the court effectively narrowed Section Two of the Voting Rights Act, the 1965 law that discriminates or that prohibits discrimination in in voting regulations. And so, what the court did in that case was to basically uphold two Arizona voting restrictions that lower courts and plaintiffs said discriminated against minority voters and had a disparate impact on those communities. Um, And so the state of Arizona and the Secretary of State in that state, they went all the way to the Supreme Court and got a favorable ruling that, in fact, those two voting regulations in that case didn't violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But more importantly is what the court said. And what the court said was that in order to prove Um, that a particular set of voting rules violates the Voting Rights Act, you have to do more than show that these rules have a disparate impact on minority voters. You have to take in the totality of the circumstances to decide whether or not they were deprived of a, quote, equal opportunity to right. the ballot box. And so this is something that a lot of voting rights activists say is going to be increasingly hard to prove. And you've already seen over the last you know, several months and or years, at least, a number of states around the country en- enact some of these voting restrictions. And so this decision is kind of billed as one that you know, in years to come could prove extremely difficult for plaintiffs challenging restrictive uh, voting rules around the country that have these disparate impacts that we talked about from actually making a successful claim under the Voting Rights Act. And I should just say that this comes, you know, just eight years after the uh, Shelby County versus Fulton decision, which struck down an entirely different but huge part of the Voting Rights Act that had to do with governments giving preclearance to southern states before they change their voting rules. And so this one kind of, fought, even though it was billed as kind of a a nonpartisan, or people were surprised to see some of the unanimity in a lot of these big cases. This was very much back to the old pattern that we've seen at the Supreme Court of kind of reining in um, the Voting Rights Act and making it a little bit more difficult, or I would say a little bit easier, on these states to enact some of these laws.
2: So this is, I mean, we've we've described sort of a Jekyll and Hyde effect to this term. Um, and as we're looking, you know, we're looking at the the year ahead. Do we have a sense of which of those is going to be predictive of, of how the court is is sort of going to operate under this new, you know, the the 6-3, um, you know, paradigm that, that currently exists on the court? It's really interesting and definitely
3: above my pay grade as to how the next term is going to shake out. But the court has taken up huge questions. I mean, we're dealing with cases that involve direct threats to the 50-year-old, Um, Landmark abortion ruling in Roe versus Wade. And that's a case involving, uh, it's a challenge to Mississippi's uh, 15 week abortion ban, which um, is a period of pre viability that's as of under the current Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence is currently protected. So that involves, like I said, a direct challenge to the court's abortion jurisprudence. In that case, you also have a potential blockbuster expansion of Second Amendment rights in a case out of New York um, challenging New York City's uh, licensing regime for concealed carry, which is extremely difficult to get. And uh, gun rights groups want to see the Supreme Court declare that there is a Second Amendment right to not just have you know, firearms inside the home, but to also be able to transport them and and, and, and carry them around. And so that's another case where you could see, obviously, a, a clear ideological split. There's another case that's pending. It hasn't been granted by the Supreme Court yet. It's in a case that I'm sure you guys have talked about before on the podcast, um, the Anti-Affirmative Action Group challenging Harvard's race-conscious admissions program. That mm-hmm. one actually poses, again, it's asking the court to overturn the Supreme Court's 2003 uh, uh, affirmative action decision in Grutter versus Bollinger. I mean, it's shaping up to be a, a blockbuster term by, you know, any metric. However, you know, we could easily be here next year talking about <laughs> the Supreme Court. Maybe didn't go as far as some people had predicted it would because they ruled a little bit narrowly. And I think it's it's just too early to say the exact direction it's going to go but if recent terms are are any guide it's it's going to be in a conservative direction the question is a matter of you know speed how how quickly are they making these these steps
0: well what i know for sure jimmy is that the supreme court's going to keep us on our toes as we move forward because we didn't get those clear answers this term we did have as bill so nicely said there a little little Jekyll and Hyde action here where you couldn't always predict what they were going to do. So our lives are going to be exciting next year. Thanks a lot for coming to talk about all of this with us today.
3: Always a pleasure guys. Thanks for having me.
0: That'll wrap up today's show, but guys, before we go, I think we want to announce something to our audience, remind them of a special summer series we have coming up.
2: We are kicking off the pro Se movie club, Next week, it's going to be terrific. We're starting off with Big Daddy... Uh, no, no, this is this is not right. I, I mean, talked I talked about oh, this. Right, right, right. Sorry, 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 <laughs> sorry. We are starting off with Legally Blonde.
0: <laughs> we are, and for good reason. It's the 20th anniversary next week yes. of Legally Blonde, and also that movie rules. So going to talk all about that. I'm so happy we're doing this.
1: Yeah, we got a couple of these uh, in, the, in the tank already. We thought it would be kind of a fun thing to do uh, after the Supreme Court is adjourned and it's sort of a slower time here. Here in the summer. Uh, If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that all three of us are uh, real, like, you know, sort of legal movie pop culture heads. Uh, And I thought that this, uh, you know, this is this is obviously a good way to kind of flex
2: that muscle a little bit. It's, it's It's a fun show. I would argue we are more pop culture heads that uh, have a have a legal podcast. That's so the probably right. That's fair, a, That's The only totally appropriate yeah. way that we've found to talk about movies is through the lens of the law. But you that's know, that's true. That's well, semantics. Yeah.
0: We're going to be leaning into our real strengths here, is what we're saying. Um, just for anybody that's a regular listener of Pro Se, you're still going to get your same you know, recap of the week in the news um, every Friday. But on Tuesdays, you'll get these bonus episodes for at least the limited series we're doing them over the summer. Um, these are going to be great to save up and, and plan your road trips this summer. And as you're sitting on a beach, they're going to be really fun.
1: Love you planning road trip content for the listeners. I think that's <laughs> I think I, amazing. Uh, hey, that's this is the year stripped. for that,
0: right? We're finally like getting a little bit no- of normalcy back, but still flying is tough. It's hard to get those connecting flights, so I think a lot of people will be in their cars.
1: We're back out in the world, we're watching legal movies, and we're talking about them on the internet, so uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, we're really excited for it.
0: So everybody can catch that first episode on Tuesday, and I'll see you guys back here next week to talk about more regular legal news. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Jimmy Hoover, and our contributing reporters, Haley Knoth, Carolina Bellotto, and Nathan Hale. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review. You can even tell us what movies you want to see us cover in Movie Club. Do that anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you want to read more about all the things we've talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast.